Hello everyone, welcome to our Saturday broadcast. So as usual, we'll start with 15 minutes of silent meditation, during which time people who have questions can post their questions. Uh, we've also created a channel on our YouTube uh, section of our Discord server. So if people want to ask questions there, they can post questions in the Ask channel throughout the week, and we'll try to get to them uh, next week. So for the future, you don't have to be listening or watching this live. You can uh, post your questions and get them answered. Now we're, as usual, we're uh, prioritizing questions related to meditation practice, questions that have a great import, um, great importance to the spiritual welfare of the people asking. So they're related to one's own practice and related to the practice of mindfulness meditation. So 15 minutes starting now.
All right, so we'll stop there with the meditation. Move right into the Q&A. So if you have questions, again, feel free to post them. If you don't have questions, just sit back and stay mindful with us. Thank you, Bhante. We do have questions. I've become very apathetic and tired of my ambitions. Can you please advise on how to deal with disenchantment of worldly pleasures? Well, disenchantment is an absence of enchantment. There's nothing to deal with. Um, what you have to assess is what you're actually experiencing. If you experience disenchantment, it's actually a, a, the path to freedom. When you lose your intoxication with impermanent things, your mind becomes stronger and more free. But... Um, when you have negative feelings towards them, that's a form of clinging. So you have to be clear that there's a difference there. If, if it's true, true apathy, what I guess means lack of pathos, lack of caring about, interest in. Ambition, that's, uh, I mean, uh, there's nothing... There's nothing to deal with there. That's a great, great success. Ambition, of course, is all about the future. And it deals in concepts. So ideas and goals and the attainment and the enjoyment of attainment of goals and so on, achievements. So it's all caught up with greed, anger, delusion. There's nothing good with ambition. If you have disenchantment with worldly pleasures, there's nothing to deal with. Now, it can be awkward, I suppose. Um, we can address the awkwardness of the disconnect between how you're accustomed to living your life and what you know to be uh, worthwhile and, and, and not worthwhile. So when, when the way you live your life starts to feel pointless, so dealing with that uh, is it's still it's quite simple, but it's important to recognize that the disconnect is um, Well, that 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 the answer is to to give up, to change, to to recognize that there's something wrong with the way you live your life, not something with the something wrong with the way your mind is, which can sometimes be the case where we feel like there's something wrong with us. Why am I not keen on ambition? Why am I not caught up in sensual pleasures? Why can I no longer find joy in the pleasures of life, be they simple or complex? And uh, th that's that's not the right question, the right um, well, the answer is to focus on changing your life, changing the way you live your life to fit what you know is right and wrong, what you know is useful and useless.
While meditating this week, I started getting waves of euphoria throughout my whole body that lasted about three hours. It felt good, but I don't understand why it happened. Do you know what causes this? Yeah, things feeling good have, have has no connection with wisdom, which is why you don't have understanding in regards to it, and there's confusion and doubt and wonder and, and just ignorance about it. So we we encourage a emphasis on clarity and mindfulness as opposed to things like states of euphoria. Euphoria, we call it piti. It's a form of what we call piti, or the rapture. They sometimes call it like Christians will rock back and forth or experience waves of euphoria like that, even in Christian religion and, and of course, Hindu religion. It's a common thing in most religions that practice some form of meditation. So something feeling good has no reference to understanding or wisdom. So and, and therefore it's it's they're, they're not related. Um, th there's the there's the subtle implication in your your words that some other something good about the fact that it felt good, and there is nothing good with the fact that it felt good. That's just a feeling. It's impermanent suffering, non-self. There's there's no actual satisfaction involved. So it's important that you note both the feeling and your desire for it or attachment to it, liking of it. As for your actual question, I'm unfortunately that or that that's not what our focus is in Buddhism, understanding the cause of things. Um, what we're interested in is, is the causal relationship in the present moment to see the cause and effect relationship between your experiences, this good feeling, and how you react to the good feeling. Um, we're not interested in past causes, not in the same way. So if you want true understanding about it, it's not, the important question isn't why it happened. The important question is really, what is it? And how do I react to it? How am I perceiving it? How am I reacting? And what are the consequences of my reactions and that sort of thing? My mind is often focused on the mantra rather than the experience. Instead of my mind being at the stomach, it is actually with the mantra. Is this a sign of wrong practice? Well, I mean, technically not, but the feeling that you get, you have to you have to be clear what it is that you're actually experiencing. There may be a sense of tension involved or, or concentration, like a, a, a forcing or a, an, um, a fixing of the mind. There can also be um, visual seeing the words or hearing the words in your mind, and you should not seeing or hearing. But um, th th you can't actually be with the object because it ceases. Um, noting is, is something that happens right after. It's a means of affirming a objective reaction to the experience as opposed to reacting with judgment or partiality. So instead of liking or disliking, you remind yourself. And so during that time, of course, you're focused on the reminder 
Um, but when, when, but after that moment, if you're if you're obsessing over it or, or going over it again, you have to see what's going on there. That's not the actual mantra. That's the mind. There, there can also be worrying about the fact that maybe you, 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 like the actual meta-analysis, oh, I am uh, focused on the mantra more than the experience. And that's, that's something you should be mindful of. You're anal your analyzing of the process and you're doubting about whether you're doing it right and worrying about whether you're doing it right and that sort of thing. So don't, be don't be concerned with the fact that the mantra is a reminder. It's a state of mind that is certain about what the experience was, and that's important. It creates a certainty, it creates a clarity, it puts the mind on the right course. As the statement, we have no control, an exception in the present moment, otherwise, how would it make sense to, say, try to see clearly? Or in what way can you try something without control? Yeah, well, control is is the ability to, um, well, to to dictate the presence or absence of experiences, and that's not what we do when we try to see clearly. We're not trying to dictate anything. We are. Um, setting the mind in a certain way that is similar to how we set the mind in in any way. For example, when you try to control, that's a certain type of mindset. When you try to see clearly, it's a different type of mindset. And that's what is certainly possible in the present moment. What is not possible is um, affecting a change in your experience, as in turning something off, turning something on, making something stay, making something go, regulating your experiences, that sort of thing, that's control. But uh, trying to see clearly is well within the realm of possibility, of course, as we can see. Sometimes while I'm meditating, I fall asleep, but somehow I keep meditating while dreaming. I say to myself, dreaming, is there somewhere I can read serious texts about this? Well, there's nothing really to read about. It's a dream, and there may be some potential to be mindful, but there can also just be the, the, um, the imitation of it based on habit that the mind continues even when you're not really mindful. Some people have what they call lucid dreams, which apparently they can actually be mindful during them, but it's not. there's nothing really to read about. You're either mindful or you're not, and most of the time when you're asleep, you're not really that mindful. How do we approach thoughts that cause us to react with fear or anxiety? Right, well, thoughts don't cause that, and this is a key in meditation, in Buddhist mindfulness practice, that the thoughts themselves have no power to cause that. However, um, our habits 
have the power to cause that. So our, we have the habitual um, inclination to respond in certain ways with fear or anxiety. So m mindfulness is about changing those habits. And that's really the answer is change your habits so that when you experience those things that you feel trigger uh, fear and anxiety, you respond in, in a, a new way. You respond in a more objective way by reminding yourself, okay, it's just thinking. And that's what we do with our meditation practice. I'd recommend if you haven't read our booklet, read the booklet. If you're interested, you can do an at-home course and learn how to practice in this tradition. It's all, all the information's on our website. There is a colleague at work who saps my positive energy. I'm finding it hard to use this as a lesson. Can you offer any advice? Well, oh yeah, there's a few things here. I mean, a person, another person's potential to sap anything is is uh, suspect at best. Um, mostly, what the actual experience is um, for these kinds of descriptions is that the experiences that you have in regards to your colleague, which are still limited to seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, feeling, and thinking, right? Very objective experiences are triggers for reactions in you that maybe create negative um negative states of mind, harmful states of mind, um, states of mind that sap your energy. But um, the whole idea of sapping positive energy has a, another problem. There's some concern we might have over the idea of clinging to something that you call positive energy, as though, uh, right, the, the, the perception that positive energy is somehow a good thing. A necessary thing or an important thing. Um, there really is no positive or negative energy. There is energy, and being energetic is generally a positive thing as long as there's not too much of it. But um, if it's about feeling positive about things, like having a sense that everything's going to turn out all right and everything is good and being happy, that's... Um, unsustainable and uncontrollable and it's untenable as a religious practice because it's unpredictable it's certainly possible for some people to go most of their lives with only positive experiences and a sense of positivity but it's also um, quite likely that most people will have to be um, disconnected from that that ability to feel positive when horrible things happen right some people go through life without horrible things happening well lucky for them but it's just luck and it's not sustainable maybe in this life if you get lucky but not over the long term life after life and certainly not um, when it comes to death where you have to come to terms with your state of mind one thing about positivity is it can lead to laziness, complacency, and also attachment to sensuality. Because, of course, positivity is tied up with pleasure and, and happiness. 
And if you're even happy about simple things, uh, it can lead to liking and attachment. So it's important to recognize that rather than blaming other people for moments where you might not feel so positive, stop trying to feel positive and start trying to see clearly whatever it is you do feel. You'll find it's much more natural, much more sustainable, much more peaceful, because it can, of course, get quite stressful whenever your positivity is threatened and your ability to feel positive is threatened. What about practicing mindfulness as you have taught, but not using any labeling, mantra whilst doing so? So when I'm walking, I'm only aware that I'm walking, but not thinking, walking, walking. Yeah, I mean, I've answered this many, many times, but my question is, how, how, can, you, how can you ensure that you are going to be doing that if you're not using the mantra, because that's exactly what the mantra is for. So it's like saying, without practicing, what if I were to just become enlightened? That's kind of the, the, the problem there, is that what, what exactly are you doing to create this state of just being aware of, of walking when walking? Because without it, it's much more likely that you fall into the idea that I am walking, and that's a problem meaning not just uh, using the words, but there actually is a sense of self, because you can't cut through that without a strong clarity of mind. There is a sense of, of attachment to it, positivity or negative, negativity, liking or disliking. Um, and there is a general often sense of conceit, so comparing say, experiences with other experiences and comparing yourself with others and so on. You can't cut through that without a strong clarity of mind, and that's what mantra meditation is for. I mean, mantra meditation is is basically the 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 go-to type of meditation in so many different traditions. So this idea that you could just be mindful without it, it, it it's just uh, sounds really great, but has no basis in actual history of meditation practice or um, actual practice. It just leads to a vague sense that somehow you're focused, and you can get quick focused, but no strength of clarity of mind that comes from being precise and concrete and certain about what it is you're actually experiencing. You just get lost. You you follow after um, ideas and perceptions and 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 narratives and so on because there's no there's no grounding in actual experience. That's what the mantra, that's what mantras do both in samatha practice and vipassana practice. Mantra meditation is, of course, very useful for the cultivation of tranquility, but it's most useful in tranquility, and I would say actually more important in tranquility, or important in the, for, even for another reason, because of how much easier it is to get lost in, in samatha practice without a rudder, without a, a guide post, without a a solid foundation of, of the mantra because you're dealing in concepts. And so the use of a mantra not only strengthens samatha practice, but also stabilizes it and keeps you from getting lost in what you want, where you want to go and getting lost in 
some of the craziness that can come up from in, in the conceptual realm, because of course concepts are infinite. But in Vipassana, it's, it's equally important. It's a stabilizer, and it creates certainty and, and veracity in your, your, uh, your objective experience of reality. Is there such a thing as the dark night of the soul in Buddhism? I hear lots of people talking about this on various forums, and it's putting many people off meditation. Yeah, no, there isn't. There is not. And there is one teacher who's gotten quite a bit of, um, I don't know what the word is, a bit, of, a bit of publicity about his teachings on that, and there are people who follow his teachings. And so power to them for their ideas, uh, and power in the sense that they're they're welcome to to that, but um, it is not orthodox, and I consider it to be problematic uh, from my own perspective, like in our tradition, because uh, the the stages of knowledge that they're talking about are, should be liberating. They should be a positive experience. So the emphasis of the negative potential negative experiences, which of course can be a part of practice, is I think detrimental. The focus on those aspects of it prevents the liber the sense of liberation. Now, of course, th there's arguments to be made um, on either side. I'm sure that, that there are many arguments against this stance, but I don't think there's any canonical or reasonable, um, reasonably Buddhist um, source for that teaching. Um, I mean, the idea behind it is that in the middle of your practice, it can be quite difficult. But it, it, it's not the actual practice that's difficult. That's just a observation of mostly what a beginner goes through in meditation practice. Uh, or maybe that's not quite fair, but what we go through when we are confronted with the hindrances, those, those things that are hindrances to our practice. The knowledges themselves are not dark. They're not a, a they're not a delving into some uh, unpleasant reaches of the mind. They are challenging, but liberating. And the process of of insight, progress of insight, should feel liberating. It should at every stage, when done properly, it should feel like a positive experience. It should feel like an improvement, a liberation, one step closer to no longer having to experience dark nights. And of course, the use of the word soul, which I don't think is a part of their, the, the vocabulary of this group that I've heard, but the dark night, um, well, the soul, of course, is, is, has no place there, but the idea behind the dark night is just that, I think, the, the recognition that it can be challenging. Is noting a form of thought construction? And does this lead to becoming and rebirth because the meditator is trying to control the experience by labeling it rather than just watching it? So basically this is a refutation of the entirety of, of the teaching that I have been taught and that I teach in the form of a question. The answer, of course, is no. 
And you should know that it's going to be no, because I, of course, this is what I teach. So if I were to say yes, I would have to give up everything that I've been taught and everything that I teach. Um, maybe a better question and a more honest question would be, um, how can you defend the noting when it appears to be a thought construction? And I believe thought constructions lead to becoming and rebirth because with thought constructions, the meditator is trying to control the experience. Or with labeling, the meditator is trying to control the experience, which is patently false. That's like saying a person who uses a mantra in Samatha meditation is trying to control the experience. It's just ridiculous. That is in no way what a mantra is for. So the idea that noting in any way is trying to control any experience is... is is way out of left field. Like there, there's no basis for it whatsoever. It's just not how a mantra works. Not what it's for. Um, is it a thought construction? Yeah, maybe. I don't know what that word exactly means, but it's something like that. It's artificial, and that's why a lot of people don't like it. But meditation is artificial. The Buddha said, if you want to, if you want to get a tree that is leaning the wrong way to lean the other way, you need a rope. You can't just, um, well, let's say push it in the other direction. You need something artificial. It's, it's not, you're not strong enough to just say, I'm going to lean in the other direction. I'm going to incline towards Nibbana. No, the mind is inclining in the wrong direction. You need something external, something artificial. That's what meditation is. It's an artifice. And that rubs people the wrong way. They think it should be more natural. That's just uh, bias, really. There is no basis for that. Meditation is a artifice, something you add to the equation that disrupt. It's disruptive. It's disruptive in the way a rope is disruptive. If an elephant is stuck in the mud, you, you use a rope to pull it out. Uh, so mindfulness is like the is the artifice, artifice the in, the thing you introduce. But that's like that's that way with all. Um, with all mantras, there's no controlling. As far as just watching, um, the only the only being who can just watch, in in the sense that I suppose you're you're I assume you're you're referring to, is an arahant. So, the practice can never be that. That's the goal. Now the question is, what you what do you do to reach that goal where you're just watching? And the implication by that is without judging. Right, without reacting, without uh, misunderstanding, yeah. with, with with a clear and uh, wise uh, understanding of the experience, and and that's not something you can just tell yourself to do. Okay, I'm going to be wise about this experience. It's like I, I'm going to be enlightened when I when I experience seeing. I'm going to have an enlightened perception of it. It doesn't work that way. That would be self. That would be control. So I think to some extent med people go into meditation that you're the sort that you're inferring exists um, apart from this practice. They go into that with a sense of control and, and, and an uh, inclination to try and control their, their minds, which, um, which mindfulness is, it doesn't do. Mindfulness is not trying to control. It's about acknowledging, uh, recognizing, and reminding. Uh, it's much more stable, much more tenable, you know, whatever, much, much more 
viable as a solution, uh, much more pure. Can you perhaps explain more about the jhanas? How can one really know that one has entered jhana stages? Well, jhana is something that means meditation. Now, the Buddha talked about certain, uh, let's say, categories of meditative attainment. So your mind does um, improve, does progress. Uh, it, it, get, it, it, it becomes more refined as you as you practice any type of meditation. Now the thing is there's two different paths of meditation. One that is based on concepts and leads only to tranquility, and the other which is based on ultimate reality and leads to um, wisdom and enlightenment. But either way, there is the refinement of the mind, and so these are stages that one goes through. And the Buddha often talked about stages that, that appear to be somewhat um, of a precursor to actual insight, actual vipassana practice, actual wisdom. So those would be trance states that can be very powerful, but not actually uh, conducive to, not actually leading to wisdom themselves. So conducive, actually, but only if you put them to work later. How can one really know that one has entered jhana stages? Well, it's not something I really focus on with my students. We're much more focused on jnana, which means knowledge, so wisdom. Is taking valerian root, often used as an herbal sleep aid, breaking the fifth precept? I don't know. I don't think so. If it's something that just makes you tired, that's not likely to be considered breaking the fifth precept. Breaking the fifth precept is those things that lead to an unaltered state of mind. Alcohol is the most obvious because it's really just a poisoning of the mind. Uh, it really impair it's a mental impairment and impairs some important um, some important faculties of the mind, especially like um, ability to to discern right from wrong and just the clarity. It's very hard, if not impossible, to be mindful once you've started drinking alcohol. So if it's something that impairs your ability to be mindful, potentially. I mean, there there is an issue with, for example, sleep aids, and it's because it doesn't it, it masks the issues behind your inability to sleep and your need to sleep, your desire to sleep, your fear of not sleeping. All of those things are kind of masked and, and ignored by taking things like valerian or whatever. I, I don't really know what that is. So it's much, much, much more healthy for you, much more fruitful, much more valuable for you to gain a better perspective. I was just talking to my father this morning, and he I didn't know that he had problems sleeping, and I guess he's just, he doesn't sleep much. He's, he's getting older, but um, he said sometimes he practices, mind, practices watching the rising and the falling to go to sleep, and he said it's really incredibly good cure for insomnia. And I, so we kind of agreed there, but uh, uh, he just made that observation and he's not um he's only 
know, doing basic meditation practice and it's already seeing the benefits. It, I can't stress enough how that how true that is that uh, the practice of mindfulness it, it it's not magic in the sense that it just poof like it's a, like a pill that you take and suddenly your insomnia is gone it shows you that your 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 approach to insomnia is just ridiculous that that we're completely missing the point missing we're completely uh misunderstanding the the state that we call insomnia mindfulness just shows you that and once you straighten that out it's like oh it wasn't what i thought it was and that thing that i thought was a problem isn't actually a problem and it's like poof suddenly insomnia is no longer a thing how does the virtue gained from meditation compare with virtue from non-meditative practice like five precepts weren't non-meditative practices responsible for instant realization during the time of buddha no it's not possible i mean try and think about what you're asking um the, see the five precepts are not a thing they don't exist so what is it you mean by the five precepts the five precepts aren't a practice now keeping the five precepts can be thought of as a practice but still what is the actual practice what is it that you're talking about let's suppose at the moment let's let's first talk about a person who makes a vow to keep the five precepts so at that moment there is a positive wholesome intention to keep the five precepts now is that going to lead to enlightenment how how is that going to help you see the five the four noble truths the four the four noble truths uh there's just no causal relationship there there's no reasonable um explanation as to why that there is a connection now there are there is a um a catalytic catalytic i don't know as a catalyst um so the five precepts of course are supportive because of the wholesome states of mind that they entail even just the wholesome state of mind of intending to keep the precepts and then there's the moment where you keep the five precepts like the, you, you want to kill and you don't kill there can be many reasons for that you can decide not to kill because of fear because of um, um, a sense of of obligation because you've made a promise and that sort of thing and none of that really has any direct connection with enlightenment either now there can be the case where you see clearly the experience and as a result where where you would have liked to have killed bef killed before um, through wisdom you don't kill and so that practice can be uh, fairly um, directly related to enlightenment but um, your, your question is a little simplistic and not really don't really mean to be condescending or, or critical of it but you have to you have to understand it on a deeper level which I mean, is understandable it, it, buddhism is not simple there are stages and there are, are a pl there's a place for the five precepts and they play a part just like samatha meditation plays a part and you have to understand the part that things play so that you don't um put 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 them out of place um or or make them out to be more or less than they are as for non-meditative practice being responsible for instant realization how would that be possible again how, how what, what is the reasonable explanation that that makes a causal relationship that, that points out the causal relationship between one and the other in the time of the buddha people became enlightened fairly quickly well to, to put it lightly 
but that is said to be because they were um, ready. They had cultivated lifetime after lifetime the necessary practices to be at the point where all they really had to do is be nudged in the right direction. And the Buddha was an expert at nudging people, pretty much reminding them of things they had lost track of as a result of being born as a human being. Is it normal? We might have to, sorry, we might have to end a little early, so just, um, we don't have to stop quite yet, but uh, maybe one or two more, if there's any tier one. Uh, This is one like that. Okay. Is it normal along the path of a non-practitioner to break the five precepts? I try, but I fail to keep them. Well, it can be that that sometimes there's an overly strict interpretation of the five precepts. So you have to be clear about what you're actually promising. For example, if someone um, asks you something, you don't have to tell them the truth. You just can't lie. What that means is you can stay quiet. Um, you can be even misleading without actually breaking the precepts. Sometimes it can actually be um, wholesome to find ways to not have to tell people the truth or, of course, lie to them. But outright lying is, of course, breaking the precept. That's often the hardest one. For some people, not drinking drugs and alcohol can be hard if they're an addict. Uh, I guess I would say try and pick up the practice of mindfulness. It really helps you with both of those and really with all five of them. Is it normal? for a non-practitioner. So there is no path of a non-practitioner in Buddhism. If you are a non-practitioner, you are not a Buddhist. And is it normal for such people to break the five precepts? Sure. So if you consider yourself to be a non-practitioner, then I don't really have anything to say to you. You're, you're, you're not on a path that we would consider to be spiritually beneficial. Now, I'm assuming that that's actually probably not the case, that you are at least interested or trying to or or inclined towards an actual practice of some sort. But maybe you mean that you don't actually do meditation practice. Well, there's no time like the present, and mindfulness is such a great thing that you can practice any time. Um, but it has to be said that either you're practicing or you're not. And if you're not, then yeah, breaking the five precepts is par for the course. Not easy to keep them. For some people, some people are naturally inclined just because of their past life habits. But it's rare. Thank you, Bonte. Those are the questions we're prepared to ask today. Okay. Thank you for your help, Chris. Of course. If there's anybody else out there in our community who wants to help out, we're, we're short today. We had no one to help us, so we could always use more volunteers. Uh, But thank you all for your questions, and I hope the answers were helpful. So have a good week. See you all next week. Sadhu. Sadhu.